I'm Emily Kate, and this is We the Voters. Hi, and welcome to episode six of the We the Voters podcast. We are officially halfway through season one. We the Voters is a podcast where I take hot topics in U.S. culture and break them down from opposite opinions. I'm your host, Emily Kate Tapchesky. I'm the founder and editor-in-chief at We the Voters, which is basically a fancy way of saying that this project is just me, so I wear a lot of hats. I'm a podcaster, editor, producer, writer, filmmaker, photographer, web designer, travel coordinator, social media manager, and the list goes on. We the Voters began in 2019 when I set off on the road to understand the ways U.S. citizens are more alike than different. This podcast is my next step in bridging the ways we listen and talk about the other side, no matter what side you're on. So, if you're a new listener, welcome. And if you're a returning listener, welcome back. In this week's episode, we're going to be talking about immigration in the United States, particularly around the question of sanctuary cities. Sanctuary cities have long been a debate over recent years. Should cities be allowed to not adhere to federal immigration enforcement? How do sanctuary cities factor into a larger immigration policy? What is the future of sanctuary cities and immigration in this country? In the next hour, I'll walk through each of these questions, taking myths apart and finding the facts. Then we'll take a look at two opposite opinions. One, that sanctuary cities are necessary to protect undocumented immigrants and play an essential role in current immigration policies. And on the opposite side, that sanctuary cities bring more problems than they solve, making communities more dangerous for all citizens. But before we look at these opinions, let's start with some basics about immigration and sanctuary cities. The United States is often called a nation of immigrants. In fact, immigration is considered to be the foundation of America. Most people can trace at least some part of their heritage to an immigrant ancestor, either recently or centuries ago. But despite these roots, immigration remains a divisive political issue today. People regularly debate the details of immigration policy, who can enter the country, stay here, work here, create a family here, and more. Overwhelmingly, Americans appear to support immigration in concept. A Gallup poll found that more than three-quarters of Americans believe immigration is good for the country. 70% of Americans want immigration to remain at its current level or be increased. The desire for more immigrants seems sharply divided along party lines. 50% of Democrats say they want more immigrants. On the other hand, only 13% of Republicans report the same. According to the Pew Research Center, approximately 40 million people living in the United States today are immigrants. This number is defined as people who were born overseas all over the world and moved to the U.S. at some point in their lives. They make up nearly 14% of the U.S. population. This number is below the record of 14.8% set in 1890 and below the peak number of 45 million people set in 2018. But still, today the immigrant population is nearly triple the share it was in 1970. As of 2017, the Pew Research Center found that approximately 77% of immigrants are lawful immigrants, either naturalized citizens, permanent residents, or temporary residents. Lawful immigrants means they entered and remain in the U.S. legally. Naturalized citizens are foreign-born people who have become citizens of the U.S., these people meet requirements such as being a lawful permanent residence for a minimum of five years, having a basic understanding of both English and U.S. civics, and taking an oath of allegiance to the United States. Permanent residents are non-citizens who are legally authorized to live and work in the U.S. permanently. These people are granted a permanent resident card, which is also known as a green card. Temporary residents are non-citizens who are given the right to stay in the U.S. for a certain length of time via a visa or a permit. These residents are typically in the U.S. for school or work. Since 1980, about 3 million people who have settled in the U.S. have been refugees. Refugees are people who have left their countries to escape war, persecution, or natural disasters. They are legal immigrants in the U.S. 
In fiscal year 2019, about 30,000 refugees were resettled from countries around the world, including the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Myanmar, and Afghanistan. The remaining 23% of all immigrants, about 10.5 billion people, are undocumented immigrants. From 1990 to 2007, the undocumented immigrant population tripled in size, reaching a record high of 12.2 million people in 2007. As of 2017, numbers suggest that undocumented immigrants make up 3.2% of the nation's total population. When talking about undocumented immigrants, two parts of immigration policy often come into discussion, DACA and sanctuary cities. DACA is the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. This program was created in 2012 to stop the deportation of undocumented immigrants who came to the U.S. as children. DACA does not provide a pathway to citizenship for these individuals, but instead lets people stay lawfully present in the country. This means they can apply for driver's licenses and work permits without threat of deportation. Approximately 1.8 million people are eligible for the DACA program. As of March 2020, only about 800,000 people are enrolled. This program was intended to be a temporary measure while Congress passed long-term immigration reform legislation. It was rescinded in 2017 by President Trump, but later reinstated by federal judges in 2020. As for sanctuary cities, there is no single definition. It can include places that enact policies that restrict the ability of police to make arrests for federal immigration violations, policies that prevent immigration detention centers, and or policies that restrict police or city workers from asking civilians about their immigration status. Generally, sanctuary cities are places that have laws or regulations that make it more difficult for Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, to locate and deport undocumented immigrants. The level of cooperation with ICE varies from place to place. Sanctuary cities can refer to states, counties, or cities with policies that protect undocumented immigrants. As of recording this, there are currently 11 states, 143 counties, and 37 cities with sanctuary policies in the U.S. This includes cities like Chicago, Los Angeles, Boston, Phoenix, New Orleans, and New York City. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about the opposing opinions about the future of sanctuary cities. But before we discuss these opinions, let's ground our discussion with the history of immigration and its related policies in the United States. For the sake of brevity in today's episode, much like the rest of the episodes thus far in Season 1, we will be discussing immigration and its history as it applies solely in the United States. The origins of immigration policy in the U.S. goes back to 1790, when Congress passed the Nationality Act. This was the first law to define eligibility of citizenship by naturalization. It established the standards and procedures for how immigrants become U.S. citizens. But this act was not without limitations. The early Nationality Act limited this process to only, quote, free white persons, unquote. In 1798, Congress passed the Alien and Sedition Acts. These acts included legislation that deported people deemed political threats to the United States. It was enacted in response to ongoing conflicts in Europe. In 1803, Congress banned black immigrants and other people of color from coming to the country. It was an attempt to contain anti-slavery campaigns and abolitionists. In 1815, immigration from Western Europe grew immensely following the War of 1812. This first major wave of immigration lasted until the start of the Civil War. These immigrants largely overwhelmed port cities, including Boston and New York. In 1848, the U.S. signed the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. This treaty was signed at the end of the Mexican-American War. It annexed a part of northern Mexico and conferred citizenship of Mexican people who chose to remain in the territory. The next year, the Supreme Court designated the power to enforce immigration policy as a federal duty, not as a state or a local power. In 1857, the Supreme Court ruled in the case Dred Scott v. Sanford. In this case, the court ruled that slaves and free black people were not U.S. citizens. Under this ruling, they were not entitled to the rights and privileges of citizenship. During the Civil War, Congress passed an act to prohibit, quote, coolie trade, unquote. This act prevented Southern plantation owners from replacing black slaves with unfree contract workers from China. 
1863, President Lincoln enacted the Emancipation Proclamation. This executive order freed all slaves in the United States. All slaves were finally officially freed two years later. Congress passed the Immigration Act of 1864 to legalize practices like indentured servitude to encourage immigration. This act was repealed four years later after numerous organized labor protests. In 1868, Congress ratified the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment guaranteed birthright citizenship to all born in the United States. It also guaranteed equal protections and due process for all legal residents. This same year, the United States signed the Burlingame Treaty. This treaty was negotiated during the construction of the Transcontinental Railroad. It allowed Chinese immigrants to freely migrate to, travel within, and work in the United States. In 1870, Congress passed the Naturalization Act. This act extended the naturalization rights offered to white immigrants to, quote, aliens of African nativity and persons of African descent, unquote. While this act legally promoted integration and equality for black citizens, it also denied these same rights to all other non-white immigrant groups, including thousands of Chinese immigrants who are currently working on the railroads and in other labor positions. A decade later, the U.S. updated its treaty with China to restrict the migration of certain Chinese workers. Chinese immigrants worked in the gold mines, farms, garment factories, and railroads. Despite making up only 0.002% of the U.S. population, white workers soon blamed them for low wages as Chinese immigrants became successful in America. During 1882, Congress passed two laws to limit immigration. The first was the Chinese Exclusion Act, which restricted immigration from China. The second was the Immigration Act, which expanded excludable groups to include other undesirable groups such as, quote, convicts, lunatics, and those likely to become a public charge, unquote. Authority over immigration was expanded six years later to enforce the Chinese exclusion laws. A new law abolished one of the immigration exemption statuses, returning laborers. It stranded about 20,000 Chinese immigrants outside the United States. The Chinese Exclusion Act would not be repealed until 1943, more than 60 years after it was first put into place. Back in 1892, Ellis Island opened in the New York Harbor. Ellis Island was the first immigration station in the U.S., more than 12 million immigrants would pass through Ellis Island between 1892 and 1954. In 1898, the Supreme Court ruled that any person born in the U.S. was a citizen by birth. This citizenship was granted regardless of race or the parent's immigrant status. In 1917, xenophobia reached new heights in the U.S. Xenophobia is the prejudice against people from other countries. In this year, Congress passed an Immigration Act which established a literacy requirement for new immigrants. It also halted immigration from most Asian and Middle Eastern countries. In 1921, Congress passed the Emergency Quota Law. This law was passed as people feared increased immigration following the end of World War I. It imposed drastic caps on the number of immigrants allowed to enter the country. The following year, women born in the U.S. were recognized as citizens. Congress passed the Cable Act, which reversed an earlier law that determined women assumed the citizenship of their husbands. Previously, if a woman had married a non-citizen immigrant, they would lose their U.S. citizenship. But after women gained the right to vote, Congress formally restored citizenship to U.S.-born women who had married non-citizen husbands. This same year, the Supreme Court affirmed the 1790 Nationality Act in the case of Ozawa v. the United States. This ruling determined that Asian immigrants were not eligible for naturalization. The court ruled that they were ineligible because they were, quote, racially not white, regardless of their demonstrated acculturation and integration, unquote. This case is one example of how opinions of isolationism and xenophobia were strengthened during and following World War I. In 1924, Congress enacted a new quota system for immigration within the Immigration Act. In this new system, the U.S. issued visas to 2% of the total number of people from each nationality in the U.S. during the 1890 census. This law favored northern and western European countries. Great Britain, Ireland, and Germany received 70% of all available visas. 
It also completely excluded Asian immigrants, aside from the Philippines, which was at that time an American colony. Following the new quota system, undocumented immigration in the U.S. began to increase. The U.S. border control was established to supervise both the Canadian and the Mexican borders. Many of these early undocumented immigrants were Chinese and other Asian immigrants who were not able to enter legally. This same year, Congress granted automatic birthright citizenship to all Native Americans born in the United States. Native Americans were the last group to gain this right set forth by the 14th Amendment. In 1929, Congress passed Bleasy's Law. This law made it illegal to cross the border outside an official entry point. It was primarily designed to restrict undocumented immigration across the U.S.-Mexico border. This law made illegally entering the country a misdemeanor. It also made returning after deportation a felony. During the Great Depression, Border Control launched several campaigns to restrict Mexican immigration. These campaigns detained Mexican people, some of which were U.S.-born citizens, and deported them back across the border. In 1942, the U.S. and Mexico agreed to the Bracero Program. This program allowed Mexican agricultural workers to enter the U.S. temporarily. It was enacted due to labor shortages during World War II and lasted until 1964. In 1948, the U.S. passed the nation's first refugee law to help the influx of Europeans seeking residency after World War II. Congress passed the McCarran-Walter Act in 1952. This act expanded immigration enforcement and upheld the national origins quotas. It also ended racial restrictions on citizenship. The next year, dissatisfaction with the McCarran-Walter Act inspired support for refugee relief legislation. This new law provided more than 200,000 visas for refugees. It primarily allowed refugees from Europe, but also included 5,000 visas for immigrants from other countries. In 1954, the Immigration Bureau continued deportations of Mexican immigrants. During this year, the Bureau claimed to deport 1 million Mexicans. In 1965, Congress passed the Immigration and Nationality Act. This act completely overhauled the immigration system. It ended national origin quotas that had been enacted in 1924, which favored some groups and excluded others. Instead, this act put a new seven-category preference system into place. This system prioritized family reunification and skilled immigrants. After signing this bill, President Johnson called the old system un-American. He said the new bill would, quote, correct a cruel and enduring wrong in the conduct of the American nation, unquote. In 1971, Berkeley, California became the first city in the U.S. to designate itself as a sanctuary city. This practice grew in popularity across California and in cities in the U.S. during the 1980s and 90s. In 1986, President Reagan signed the Immigration Reform and Control Act into law. This law granted amnesty to more than 3 million immigrants living illegally in the United States. It also increased border enforcement and expanded guest worker visa programs. Four years later, Congress revised the Immigration Act of 1965 to implement the H-1B visa program. This program allowed skilled temporary workers to enter the U.S. It included opportunities to obtain permanent resident status. This act also included a diversity visa lottery. This lottery sought to serve people who were unable to enter the U.S. through the preference system, which prioritized family reunification, skilled workers, and refugees. In 1994, Operation Gatekeeper began. This was a measure aimed to stop undocumented immigration at the U.S.-Mexico border. According to the U.S. Citizen and Immigration Services, it sought to, quote, restore integrity and safety to the nation's busiest border, unquote. Congress passed the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigration Responsibility Act in 1996. This act strengthened border control's resources and funding. It increased border policing and increased employment verification protocols. In 2001, two senators proposed the Development, Relief, and Education of Alien Minors, or DREAM Act. This bipartisan legislation sought to provide a pathway to legal status for undocumented immigrants brought to the U.S. as children. This bill and its subsequent revisions did not pass Congress. Five years later, Congress passed the Security Fence Act. 
This act built more than 700 miles of fence along the U.S.-Mexico border. It attempted to deter undocumented immigration and secure the U.S. border. In 2012, President Obama issued an executive order establishing DACA. This order temporarily shields some dreamers from deportation. It does not provide a path to citizenship for these undocumented immigrants. President Obama issued a second executive order named DAPA in 2014. This order sought to stop deportation of undocumented immigrants whose children were American citizens or lawful permanent residents. It was rescinded three years later by the next administration. In 2016, President Obama revisited a, quote, catch-and-release policy, unquote, that previously ended in 2006. This policy allows undocumented immigrants to be released while awaiting a hearing in immigration court. This policy was rescinded under President Trump's administration and later revived once again by President Biden earlier this month. Back in 2017, President Trump issued two executive orders to curtail travel and immigration from six majority Muslim countries, North Korea and Venezuela. These travel bans have subsequently been challenged in both state and federal courts. The next year, travel restrictions on one country were lifted. The Supreme Court upheld a third version of the ban, which limited immigration and travel on the seven remaining countries. Also in 2018, President Trump called for a zero-tolerance policy on undocumented immigration, which included family separation at the U.S.-Mexico border. This policy separated minor children from their parents who were crossing the border or seeking asylum. This family separation policy was largely met with outrage from the general public. Due to mounting pressure, President Trump signed an order later that year to end family separation. The process to reunify children with their parents is still ongoing, as is the investigation into the length and scope of separations at the border between 2017 and 2020. Which brings us to today. In 2018, the Pew Research Center found that 44% of all immigrants, both lawful and undocumented, come from Mexico, China, India, the Philippines, and El Salvador. Nearly half of all immigrants live in California, Florida, and Texas. Currently, Mexican immigrants make up the largest segment of the immigrant population, about 25%. But by 2055, estimates show that immigrants from Asian countries are projected to be the largest immigrant group, making up 38%. Estimates suggest that undocumented immigrants make up about 3.2% of people living in the U.S., but they also make up about 4.6% of people working in the U.S. These numbers are down from their peak in 2007, when the group made up about 4% of the U.S. population and more than 5% of the workforce. Due to the undocumented nature of these immigrants, it is impossible to get firm statistics on this population. However, experts have made certain estimates over recent years. For example, in 2017, the Pew Research Center reported that there were about 4.9 million undocumented Mexican immigrants in the U.S. This is 2 million less people from a decade earlier. In 2017, undocumented Mexican immigrants made up 47% of all undocumented immigrants, dropping below half for the first time. The number of undocumented immigrants from Central America and Asia have steadily grown since 2007. This growth has been attributed to unrest in countries from these regions. More than half of undocumented immigrants live in six states, California, Texas, Florida, New York, New Jersey, and Illinois. As of 2017, about two-thirds of undocumented immigrant adults have lived in the U.S. for more than 10 years. This number has risen about 25% since 2007. 337,000 immigrants were deported from the U.S. during the fiscal year 2018. This number was up more than 40,000 deportations from the year before. Of the immigrants deported in 2018, more than half were not convicted of a crime. 44% of these immigrants had criminal convictions. The number of apprehensions at the U.S.-Mexico border have doubled between 2018 and 2019. More than 850,000 people were apprehended at the border in 2019. Public opinion about immigration has changed over the past 25 years. In 2019, about two-thirds of Americans say, quote, immigrants strengthen the country because of their hard work and talents, unquote. 
25 years earlier, only 31% of Americans held that same opinion. On the other hand, 24% of Americans in 2019 reported, quote, immigrants burdened the country by taking jobs, housing, and health care, unquote. This is down from nearly two-thirds of respondents in 1994. As we discussed at the top of this episode, there are currently almost 200 sanctuary states, cities, and counties across the United States. While the first practice of sanctuary policies came into effect in 1971, the practice has increased popularity in recent years. Beginning in 2017, a number of cities, states, and counties across the United States named themselves sanctuaries for undocumented immigrants. This move came as a response to the former President Trump's controversial immigration policies, including the travel ban and family separation at the U.S.-Mexico border. For example, in October 2017, California passed SB 54. This state law made California a sanctuary state. It prohibits agencies from cooperating with ICE regarding undocumented immigrants who have committed misdemeanors. Ten other states have passed pro-sanctuary city legislation to become sanctuary states. These states are Colorado, Connecticut, Illinois, Massachusetts, New Jersey, New Mexico, New York, Oregon, Vermont, and Washington. On the other hand, 12 states have banned sanctuary policies completely. Some of this legislation has been blocked by federal courts or is subject to ongoing lawsuits, but many bans are still in effect today. For example, Arizona banned sanctuary cities in 2010 with the passing of Arizona SB 1070. This state law requires local law enforcement to contact federal agents if they suspect a person they've arrested or detained is an undocumented immigrant. The other states that have banned sanctuary cities are Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Iowa, Mississippi, Missouri, North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Texas. According to a 2018 Gallup poll, the American people appear split on supporting sanctuary cities. Half report that they want to ban sanctuary cities and require local government to enforce federal immigration laws. On the other hand, 46% say that they support sanctuary cities. In today's episode, we'll take a look at the reasoning behind this split. After the break, we'll look at some of the reasons why some Americans support sanctuary cities and their related policies. Then, we'll look at the opposite opinion held by those who do not support sanctuary cities. But first, let's take that break. And we're back. As we talked about before the break, Americans today appear split in their support of sanctuary cities. Later in this episode, we'll discuss the opinions held by people who believe sanctuary cities should be banned and they should not receive federal funding. But for now, we'll be discussing the opposite opinion, that sanctuary cities should be supported and they should receive federal funding. The spread of sanctuary cities largely began in the late 80s and early 90s, when religious congregations began helping undocumented immigrant families settle in the U.S. These groups worked directly against U.S. immigration authorities, who had denied more than 90% of asylum requests from people fleeing violence in El Salvador and Guatemala. At the movement's founding, activists believed that the federal government was breaking both international and domestic refugee law. Three cities in California became the first to enact sanctuary policies. These cities are Berkeley in 1971, Los Angeles in 1979, and San Francisco in 1985. With these policies, police officers were required to not ask about immigration status. They were officially obligated to provide city services to all residents equally, regardless of immigration status. Today, sanctuary cities have spread across the country to encompass 37 cities, 134 counties, and 11 states. Supporters say that these places are integral to both protecting undocumented immigrants and citizens around the country. There are three main reasons proponents cite when making a case for sanctuary cities. These reasons are 1. Sanctuary policies make communities safer for all who live there. 2. Sanctuary cities keep families together and strengthen local economies. And 3. 
Sanctuary cities protect undocumented immigrants against what supporters call, quote, unjust immigration laws, unquote. Let's take a look at each of these reasons one by one. First, that sanctuary policies make communities safer for all who live there. Supporters say that sanctuary cities help law enforcement form better relationships with undocumented immigrants. Studies have found that 70% of undocumented immigrants are less likely to report being the victim of a crime. Additionally, almost half of Latinx people are less likely to report crimes or voluntarily help the police. In both of these circumstances, people report being afraid officers will ask about their immigration status. Zoe Lofgren is a California congresswoman. In 2015, she wrote an op-ed in U.S. News & World Report. In this piece, she wrote that the fear of being asked about immigration status meant that people were less likely to cooperate with investigations or report crimes. She says, quote, As a result, criminals thrive and the general public suffers, unquote. The congresswoman points to an example in Dayton, Ohio. Dayton has a sanctuary policy in place which bars police officers from checking the immigration status of witnesses and crime victims. It also bars them from checking the status during minor traffic stops. As a result, the Dayton police chief reported that violent crime dropped nearly 22%. Serious property crime decreased almost 15%. Congresswoman Lofgren writes that this example shows how sanctuary cities can benefit all residents, including undocumented immigrants. Instead of withholding federal funds from sanctuary cities, she says it's time to pursue real solutions to make our communities safer. Other cities have seen similar success with lower crime rates after becoming sanctuary cities. San Francisco enacted a City of Refuge ordinance in 1989. 25 years later, San Francisco saw its lowest homicide rate since becoming a sanctuary city. It is, however, important to note that crime rates have been trending down overall in recent decades. But the 2013 homicide rate in San Francisco was notably lower when compared to non-sanctuary cities. San Francisco saw 5.75 murders per 100,000 residents in 2013. In comparison, Dallas saw 11.39 murders and Indianapolis saw 15.17 murders per 100,000 residents that same year. Crime rates are not the only barometer that sanctuary cities make a place safer. Supporters say that the effect on public safety is notable. In 2013, a University of Illinois Chicago study found that local police involvement in federal immigration cases made both lawful and undocumented immigrants less willing to trust the legal system. This study surveyed lawful and undocumented immigrants in Chicago, Houston, LA, and Phoenix. Researchers found that 38% of immigrants felt like they were under more suspicion from law enforcement, and 45% said because of this, they were less likely to report a crime. When taking a look at undocumented immigrants specifically, 70% said that they were less likely to report a crime. Researchers say that this broken trust was most apparent in Phoenix, where local officials had made strict immigration enforcement a priority. Police departments across the country take public trust seriously. In 2009, the Police Foundation published a report about immigration enforcement and cooperation. The report concluded, quote, Without this cooperation, law enforcement will have difficulty apprehending and successfully prosecuting criminals, thereby reducing overall public safety for the larger community, unquote. Other proponents say that sanctuary cities may prevent crime by attracting more immigrants overall. IPC is the Immigration Policy Center. This center is a research and policy wing of the American Immigration Council. In a 2015 report, they found that immigrants are less likely to commit crimes than native-born citizens. IPC reports that 1.6 of all immigrant men, both lawful and undocumented, between the ages of 18 and 39 are incarcerated. On the other hand, 3.3% of male U.S. citizens in that same age range are in prison. Supporters of sanctuary cities say that overall, sanctuary cities see 15% less crime than non-sanctuary cities. This includes violent and petty crime rates. Second, supporters say that sanctuary cities keep families together and strengthen local economies. The Center for American Progress is a liberal public policy organization. In 2017, it released a report about the effects of sanctuary policies in the economy. 
Among key findings, researcher Tom Wong found that, quote, economies are stronger in sanctuary counties, from higher median household income, less poverty, and less reliance on public assistance, to higher labor force participation, higher employment to population ratios, and lower unemployment, unquote. He reports that while these findings hold true across a wide variety of population sizes, sanctuary counties with the smallest populations saw the largest effects. On average, Tom found that the median annual income per household was more than $4,000 higher in sanctuary counties compared to non-sanctuary ones. The poverty rate in sanctuary counties was 2.3% lower than in non-sanctuary counties on average. When looking specifically at Latinx individuals, poverty rates are 2.9% lower in sanctuary counties. Similarly, Tom found that there was significantly less reliance on public assistance like SNAP benefits and supplementary security income in sanctuary counties. For example, the number of households that received SNAP benefits were on average 2.6% lower than the number of households in non-sanctuary counties. The Center for American Progress associates these findings with three reasons. Higher labor force participation, higher employment to population ratios, and lower unemployment. Labor force participation is a key indicator of a strong local economy. This rate is determined by the number of people over 16 years old who are working or looking for a job. In 2017, Tom found that the labor force participation rate was 2.5% higher in sanctuary counties on average. This was statistically significant and held true across both urban and rural communities. When looking specifically at Latinx individuals, he found that the participation was 1.2% higher in sanctuary counties across rural and urban communities. Specifically looking at rural communities, he found that Latinx labor force participation was 5.2% higher in rural sanctuary counties when compared to rural non-sanctuary ones. The employment-to-population ratio is another key indicator of a strong economy. This ratio is the number of people of working age who are employed divided by the total number of people of working age. Once again, it was found to be higher in sanctuary counties, to the average of 3.1%. Additionally, the overall average unemployment rate was 1.1% lower when comparing sanctuary with non-sanctuary counties. When looking at the breakdown between nationalities, Latinx unemployment was on average 1% higher in sanctuary counties, while white unemployment was 0.8% lower. Tom says these findings suggest, quote, the economic gains to sanctuary cities do not accrue to Latinos at the expense of whites, unquote. Altogether, the Center for American Progress concludes that, quote, when local law enforcement focuses on keeping communities safe rather than becoming entangled in federal immigration enforcement efforts, communities are safer and community members stay more engaged in their local economy. This in turn brings benefits to individual households, communities, counties, and the economy as a whole, unquote. Supporters of sanctuary cities say that mass deportations would harm U.S. families and the economy. The Center for Migration Studies, or CMS, is an educational think tank. In 2017, it released a report that analyzed the population of undocumented immigrants in the U.S. In this report, researchers found that about 750,000 undocumented immigrants are self-employed. Supporters suggest that they have created their own jobs, not taken ones from American citizens, and in the process have often created jobs for others. CMS reports that about 13% of undocumented immigrant adults have college degrees. Two-thirds of these individuals have degrees in engineering, business, communications, or social sciences. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, the median household income for undocumented immigrants in 2014 was $41,000. This number is almost $13,000 less than the national average income that year. CMS found that nearly three-quarters of undocumented immigrants made incomes at or above the poverty level. It also reported that more than 60% of undocumented immigrants have been in the U.S. for more than 10 years. Supporters point to these findings as reasons why mass deportation would damage the U.S. economy and why sanctuary cities are a smart decision. CMS reports that removing undocumented immigrants from mixed-status households would greatly reduce their household incomes. 
mixed status households indicate that one part of the household is undocumented, while the other part is either a lawful immigrant or a U.S. citizen. Supporters suggest that removing undocumented immigrants from these households would nearly have their household incomes, dropping them from about $41,000 annually to $22,000. This 47% drop would mean millions of families would then live in poverty. Proponents also suggest that removing undocumented immigrants would harm the housing market and the GDP. CMS reports that a high percentage of the 1.2 million mortgages held by households with undocumented immigrants would be in peril. Researchers suggest that mass deportation leads to lost household income, foreclosure, and lost wealth. These effects would in turn harm the housing market at large. Additionally, researchers suggest that, quote, policy of mass deportation would immediately reduce the nation's GDP by 1.4% and ultimately by 2.6% and reduce the cumulative GDP over 10 years by $4.7 trillion, unquote. These numbers indicate that undocumented immigrants widely contribute to the larger economy as a whole, despite their undocumented status. Supporters of sanctuary cities suggest that mass deportation not only harms families, but it can cost taxpayers billions of dollars in public benefits. Researchers project that if just one-third of U.S.-born children of undocumented immigrants stayed in the U.S. after their parents were deported, this could cost about $118 billion to raise them to adulthood. Instead, they say that sanctuary cities can divert mass deportation and keep these negative economic consequences from occurring in the first place. Since sanctuary cities do not comply with federal immigration policy, supporters say they can essentially shield undocumented immigrants from deportation. This in turn saves taxpayers billions of dollars and keeps families united. Third, proponents say sanctuary cities protect undocumented immigrants from what supporters call, quote, unjust immigration laws, unquote. Supporters say that sanctuary policies are legal and protected under the Tenth Amendment. The Tenth Amendment separates federal and state powers. The Immigration Legal Resource Center is a national nonprofit advocacy organization. It says that the Tenth Amendment, quote, prevents the federal government from coercing state or local governments to use their resources to enforce a federal regulatory program like immigration, unquote. Thus, advocates say that Congress cannot make state or local governments work with federal immigration enforcement. They argue that since the data was not collected due to sanctuary policies that prohibit asking for immigration status, these local governments are not breaking federal law. Additionally, many proponents say that current federal immigration policies are inequitable. Libby Schaff is the mayor of Oakland, California. She says, quote, I like to compare this to conscientious objector status. We are not going to use our resources to enforce what we believe are unjust immigration laws, unquote. Some supporters say that federal policies are unjust because it targets undocumented immigrants indiscriminately, it deports people who have committed no crimes, and it separates families. The U.S. currently has a fast-track deportation process in place. This process is called expedited removal. It was mainly used by Border Patrol near the U.S.-Mexico border, but since 2019, agents are authorized to use this process all over the U.S. Proponents say that this process unfairly targets undocumented immigrants. Under this process, ICE agents can question, arrest, detain, and deport undocumented immigrants who have been here for as little as two years. Supporters say this process can harm immigrants who have pending immigration applications and other court proceedings. With this expedited proceeding, some immigrants have been deported before they're scheduled to appear in court to make their case. Congress officially authorized expedited removal in 1996. It allowed federal agents to bypass the deportation process, which included hearings, appeals, and a final adjudicated deportation order. This program was intended to be used sparingly. In 2004, President Bush expanded its use to include undocumented immigrants apprehended within 100 miles of either border and undocumented immigrants who had entered the country within the previous two weeks. President Obama's administration maintained these expanded requirements. But some supporters say there are major issues with ICE agents having expanded powers. Some cite concerns that legal immigrants will be picked up and detained on accident. 
USA Today reports that this very situation happened in June 2019. Francisco Galicio was 17 years old when he was arrested by Border Patrol agents. Francisco was born in Dallas. He was carrying both a state ID and a wallet-sized copy of his birth certificate when he was arrested. And still, Francisco was detained by the government for 26 days. He wasn't released until a local newspaper ran the story of his case. A study found that the federal government detained or deported about 4,000 American citizens in 2010. Between 2003 and 2010, more than 20,000 citizens were deported, largely due to mistakes and, quote, extremely lax procedural safeguards, unquote. Supporters say that cases like Francisco's rose over the four years President Trump was in office. USA Today reports that ICE agents questioned about 6,000 U.S. citizens in 2016. The following year, agents questioned more than 27,000 citizens. This is nearly five times as many inquiries. Proponents also say that deportation policies negatively impact families and children. A study published by the American Psychological Association found that federal immigration policies create a psychological toll on both children and families. Quote, Uncertainty of their lives and their futures is ever-present. The lingering possibility of deportation of parents leaves children with constant anxiety and vigilance about the potential becoming real, unquote. A parent's legal vulnerability has been linked to depression, anxiety, social isolation, aggression, and self-stigma. Advocates say that forced separation can have long-standing effects, including financial and emotional hardships. In 2012, the Center for American Progress released a report about immigration enforcement and its impact on families. In this report, researcher Joanna Drebbe proposes three recommendations to support undocumented immigrants, including that Congress enacts common-sense policy changes. She writes, quote, In the long term, only comprehensive immigration reform with a pathway to earned legalization for unauthorized immigrants can grant long-term security to parents in mixed-status families. Children need not be afraid that their family will be broken up due to irregular statuses. They must not learn to be ashamed of their immigrant heritage, unquote. Additionally, the Center for American Progress suggests that it is time to provide support for undocumented immigrants. This includes allowing undocumented immigrants to stay in the country if they've committed no crimes and are only guilty of being in the U.S. without legal status. So, to recap, supporters of sanctuary cities say that these policies protect undocumented immigrants from, quote, unjust immigration policies, unquote. They say that sanctuary cities actually make cities safer, lowering crime rates overall, and encouraging cooperation with the police. They also say that sanctuary cities lead to a stronger local economy because they keep families together. After the break, we'll take a look at the other side of public opinion, that sanctuary cities should be banned and that places with sanctuary policies should not get federal funding. But first, let's take that break. And we're back. Before the break, we took a look at one side of public opinion, that sanctuary cities have more benefits than consequences. Now let's take a look at the other side, that sanctuary cities should be banned and should not get federal funding. At the base of this argument against sanctuary cities, proponents say that undocumented immigration is simply illegal. Some undocumented immigrants enter the country illegally by crossing borders without a visa or authorization. Others enter illegally with a visa but then overstay their authorization after entering the U.S. Proponents say undocumented immigrants have committed a crime when they come to the U.S. or stay in the U.S. illegally. They have violated immigration laws with these actions. Thus, they say that all undocumented immigrants have committed a crime. The distinction is no longer whether they have committed a crime, but instead whether they have committed a violent crime before or after entering the United States. The Heritage Foundation is a conservative think tank. It says, quote, the Justice Department has a constitutional duty to enforce immigration laws passed by Congress against illegal aliens, unquote. Supporters say that sanctuary cities block federal officials from enforcing these laws and thus unfairly benefit undocumented immigrants. Proponents of banning sanctuary cities cite three reasons for why these places should not receive federal funding. 
One, sanctuary cities can create a safe haven for criminals. Two, sanctuary policies limit law enforcement's ability to do their jobs. And three, sanctuary policies are hypocritical. They defy federal laws yet still desire federal funds. Let's take a look at each of these one by one. First, supporters of banning sanctuary cities say that these policies can create a safe haven for criminals. Consider the case of Kate Steinle. In 2015, Kate Steinle was shot by an undocumented immigrant in San Francisco. Jose Inez Garcia Zarate told KGO-TV that he shot Kate, but it was an accident. This case drew national attention due to Jose's immigration status and criminal history. Jose had seven felony convictions in the U.S. He had been deported from the country five times. He had convictions under two different aliases. During his time in the U.S., he worked as a laborer in four states. He returned after each time he was deported. His most recent conviction had been in 1997 for possessing heroin and manufacturing narcotics. And yet, proponents point out that San Francisco declined to detain him for ICE officials. Instead, local law enforcement released him back into the community where he later killed Kate Steinle. This case soon gained traction across the country, sparking an intense debate about sanctuary cities. Supporters of banning sanctuary cities say that this case illustrates how sanctuary cities no longer serve their intended purpose. Sanctuary cities were first founded to provide refuge to immigrants fleeing from Central America in the 1980s and 90s. These days, however, proponents say their reach has gone too far. Some point out that sanctuary cities block ICE from removing criminal offenders who are in the U.S. illegally in the first place. Following Kate Steinle's death, legislation was introduced in both the House and the Senate to address this issue. In July 2015, the House passed the No Sanctuary for Criminals Act. This is known unofficially as Kate's Law. This law proposed cutting federal funds to sanctuary cities that didn't cooperate with immigration enforcement officials. The next year, the Senate failed to pass their version of this law after a filibuster. In 2017, the House again passed two bills to address this issue, which were then sent to the Senate floor. Kate's Law sought to address issues with the safe haven sanctuary cities pose. The bill increased the maximum prison term for people who had been deported and then re-entered the U.S. It also included a minimum 10-year sentence for terrorists who had been deported and later re-entered the U.S., a mandatory five-year sentence for people who had illegally entered the U.S. twice before, and a minimum five-year sentence for those who had re-entered the U.S. after being convicted of an aggravated felony. As we discussed earlier in this episode, an aggravated felony includes murder, drug trafficking, money laundering, sexual crimes, and fraud. Supporters of banning sanctuary cities say that Kate's law would serve as a way to enforce the law against undocumented immigrants who committed crimes. They say it would help make communities even more safe. The Center for Immigration Studies, or CIS, is a conservative think tank. In 2014, it studied the release rates from sanctuary cities over eight months. CIS reported that 63% of undocumented immigrants released from detention had previous criminal convictions or were marked as a public safety concern. About 36% had felony charges or convictions. The data also showed that about 23% of undocumented immigrants released had misdemeanor convictions or charges related to violence, assaults, sexual abuse, weapons, or drug distribution. Almost 3% of all released had three or more misdemeanor convictions. CIS reported that almost a quarter of undocumented immigrants released were arrested for another crime within that time period. Some of these people were arrested multiple times during those eight months, including for serious charges like burglary, sexual abuse, and drug distribution. Proponents point to this data to show how sanctuary cities can harbor dangerous criminals, making cities more dangerous for all residents. Analysis from the Boston Globe between 2008 and 2012 found that 30% of undocumented immigrants released in sanctuary cities committed new offenses. These offenses included rape, attempted murder, and sexual crimes against children. The Globe says that this is a rate that is, quote, markedly higher than the immigration and customs enforcement officials have suggested to Congress in the past, unquote. Second, proponents say that sanctuary policies limit law enforcement's ability to do their jobs. When state, local, and federal law enforcement agencies are blocked from cooperating with one another, supporters say that everyone may suffer. 
They suggest that many crimes in sanctuary cities could be prevented if local law enforcement could arrest undocumented immigrants for their first crime on U.S. soil, illegal entry into the country. Heather McDonald was a fellow at the Manhattan Institute. In 2004, she wrote an article for the City Journal about the crime rate among undocumented immigrants. She says that one of the largest issues in sanctuary cities is law enforcement's inability to arrest criminals merely due to their immigration status. She writes, quote, In Los Angeles, for example, dozens of members of a ruthless Salvadoran prison gang have sneaked back into town after being deported for such crimes as murder, assault with a deadly weapon, and drug trafficking. Police officers know who they are and know that their mere presence in the country is a felony. Yet should a cop arrest an illegal gangbanger for felonious re-entry, it is he who will be treated as a criminal for violating LAPD's rule against enforcing immigration law. Unquote. Heather found that in 2004, 95% of all outstanding homicide warrants in L.A. targeted undocumented immigrants. Up to two-thirds of all fugitive felony warrants in the city were also for this population. Proponents suggest that local law enforcement is not only deterred but punished for enforcing federal immigration laws. For instance, Heather writes, quote, If a Hollywood officer were to arrest an illegal dealer known on the street as a border brother for his immigration status, or even notify the Immigration and Naturalization Service since early 2003 absorbed into the new Department of Homeland Security, he would face severe discipline for violating Special Order 40, the city's sanctuary policy, unquote. This order stops officers from inquiring about a person's immigration status until after they have filed charges. They cannot arrest someone for illegally entering the U.S. or alert ICE about an undocumented immigrant who has been arrested for minor infractions. Proponents say that this disjointed approach between local and federal law enforcement may cause more harm in the community than it prevents. Some suggest that sanctuary cities work against key policing methods at work. Consider proactive policing. This is a practice of picking up a violator for minor crimes, suggesting that officers may deter a major crime in the future. In the case of undocumented immigration, some suggest that sanctuary cities block officers from preventing major crimes. If they were able to stop known undocumented immigrants, like gang members or drug traffickers, on the offense of illegal reentry, proponents suggest they would be able to reduce crime in the community as a whole. Some proponents say that crime could be avoided if immigration authorities were able to effectively do their jobs. They argue that sanctuary cities block this process, creating an issue for all citizens. In 2018, the Justice Department sued the state of California. In this lawsuit, the department said California refused to comply with detainment requests and other immigration policies put forth by ICE. California, on the other hand, argued that sanctuary statutes encouraged undocumented immigrants to integrate into their communities, granting them asylum and protection. In this case, the Justice Department argued that sanctuary laws put a strain on federal law enforcement. Efforts to remove violent criminals and multiple offenders were largely blocked across the state, making ICE's job difficult to enact. The American Police Officers Alliance, or APOA, is a nonprofit organization that supports police and civilian organizations. It reports, quote, As a result, the free reign of violent criminals who have been released back into the public after local law enforcement refused to complete an ICE detainer request for further investigation has resulted in crimes that could have potentially been prevented, unquote. Consider the case of Kate Steinle, which we discussed a few moments ago. The APOA says, quote, This is just a single example of the failure and breakdown of relationships between local and state law enforcement and the federal organizations tasked with protecting borders, unquote. Supporters say these instances are not rarities across the country. Instead, proponents say that they are symptoms of a larger issue with immigration policy. But the first step to fixing these policies is addressing sanctuary cities. Supporters of banning sanctuary cities say that law enforcement needs to be able to cooperate fully and operate fairly. By doing so, it will support public safety and fair legal immigration practices. The APOA says, quote, law enforcement agencies need to work together to bring criminals to justice while allowing those who are not offenders to obtain citizenship on the legal path. 
The resources that are wasted in the refusal to communicate and comply are preventing the country from moving forward to a modern immigration model that both encourages people to want to come to the country in a legal way and also discourages criminals from crossing the border illegally and committing crimes in the U.S., unquote. Third, proponents say that sanctuary policies are hypocritical. They defy federal laws, yet still desire federal funds. 8 U.S. Code 1373 states, quote, A federal, state, or local government entity or official may not prohibit or in any way restrict any government entity or official from sending to or receiving from the Immigration and Naturalization Service information regarding the citizenship or immigration status, lawful or unlawful, of any individual, unquote. Proponents say that sanctuary cities inherently defy this statute by not inquiring about and submitting immigration statuses of both residents and criminals. The Department of Justice requires recipients of federal grants to comply with all federal laws. By not complying with federal immigration laws, supporters of banning sanctuary cities say they no longer qualify for grant money. Essentially, proponents suggest that you cannot have it both ways. As we discussed a few moments ago, in 2017, the House passed the No Sanctuary for Criminals Act. This legislation sought to ban sanctuary cities. For places that did not cooperate with federal immigration policies, it sought to withhold funding and grants from the Departments of Justice and Homeland Security. Mark Krikorian is executive director at CIS. He says sanctuary cities pose both practical and constitutional risks. Mark says the constitutional threat is, quote, that these jurisdictions are taking immigration law into their own hands. They're deciding which illegal immigrants are subject to deportation and which aren't, unquote. Critics say that sanctuary cities are protected under the Tenth Amendment. But proponents say that denying federal funds is legal under the precedent set in the 1987 Supreme Court case South Dakota v. Dole. In this case, the court ruled that withholding funds was allowable if it was, quote, relevant to the federal interest in the projects and the overall objectives thereof, unquote. South Dakota v. Dole revolved around the federal government withholding highway funds if the state did not raise the drinking age to 21. The National Review reports, quote, This was deemed constitutional because highway funds are meant to ensure safer travel, which was the federal project or objective, and so was raising the drinking age, unquote. In the case of sanctuary cities, proponents suggest that this precedent applies because funding being withheld is specifically related to law enforcement. The National Review reports, quote, Any funds that are to be withheld come from immigration, crime, national security, or justice-related funding sources. Withholding funds from states that do not comply with federal immigration law is relevant to the federal interest and objectives of the programs for which funds are being intended, unquote. Simply put, supporters suggest that the federal government has a stake in enforcing immigration policies. Funding state law enforcement agencies helps them enforce these policies. Therefore, proponents suggest that the government is allowed to withhold funds if states don't help them enforce these laws. Many sanctuary jurisdictions rely heavily on federal funding. If they lose this funding, their current state and local spending would need to be reallocated. Thus, this data suggests that withholding funds may be an effective way in enforcing compliance to federal policy. Supporters of banning sanctuary cities say that enforcing immigration law is a federal duty, but it requires local and state cooperation to ensure the process runs smoothly. By taking federal funds but not enforcing federal laws, they suggest that sanctuary cities are trying to have the best of both worlds. President George Bush gave an address in 2006 that articulated undocumented immigration and the law. He said, quote, We're a nation of laws and we must enforce our laws. We're also a nation of immigrants and we must uphold that tradition, which has strengthened our country in so many ways. These are not contradictory goals. America can be a lawful society and a welcoming society at the same time. We will fix the problems created by illegal immigration and we will deliver a system that is secure, orderly, and fair. Unquote. Some proponents say that sanctuary cities inherently do not enforce the nation's laws. And therefore, they say that the discussion on whether or not sanctuary cities are valid or moral is irrelevant. 
because simply sanctuary cities are not operating within the law. Consider the case of Dennis McCann. Dennis was walking with a friend to have dinner in Chicago when he was killed in a hit and run. Saul Chavez ran over Dennis shortly after completing probation for a DUI. Saul was an undocumented immigrant. Despite knowing Saul's immigration status, authorities did not notify ICE when he was released on bond. Shortly after, he fled the area. He had not been held accountable for his crimes. Former Attorney General Jeff Sessions has this to say about the case, quote, To a degree perhaps unsurpassed by any other jurisdiction, the political leadership of Chicago has chosen deliberately and intentionally to adopt a policy that obstructs this country's lawful immigration system. They have demonstrated an open hostility to enforcing laws designed to protect law enforcement, federal, state, and local, and reduce crime, and instead have adopted an official policy of protecting criminal aliens who prey on their own residents, unquote. Ken Blackwell is a fellow at the Family Research Council. He says that the states are allowed to say no to the federal government due to states' rights, but the federal government is also allowed to withhold funds from states that counteract national policies. He writes, quote, For too long, local officials have obstructed federal immigration law with impunity. The Constitution protects the rights of states to say no, but the Constitution does not require national taxpayers to subsidize lawbreakers, unquote. So, to recap, people who want to ban sanctuary cities believe that undocumented immigration is illegal, and those who break the law to enter the country should be held accountable for their actions. Additionally, proponents say that sanctuary cities create a safe haven for criminals and limit law enforcement's ability to do their jobs. They also say that sanctuary cities are hypocritical. They defy federal laws, yet still desire federal funds. On the other hand, people who support sanctuary cities believe that these policies protect undocumented immigrants from, quote, unjust immigration policies, unquote. They say that sanctuary cities actually make communities safer, lowering crime rates overall and encouraging cooperation with the police. They also say that sanctuary cities lead to a stronger local economy because they keep families together. But what do you think? Should the government supply federal funds to cities or states that pass sanctuary laws? Do sanctuary cities make communities more or less safe? What is the path forward when addressing the undocumented immigrant population in the U.S.? Let me know your thoughts on these questions or anything I talked about in this week's episode by shooting me a text or leaving me a voicemail. You can reach We The Voters at 773-658-9492. You can also email me at wethevotersproject at gmail.com. A quick heads up, your stories and reaction may be used in an upcoming episode or in another part of the We The Voters site. Also, let's stay in touch between episodes. I keep this conversation going on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find me on Facebook at We The Voters Project on Twitter at HiWeTheVoters, and on Instagram at WeTheVoters. WeTheVoters is a project funded by people like you. If you like what you heard today, please consider supporting this work with a one-time or monthly donation. You can donate on patreon.com slash WeTheVoters or via Venmo, Cash App, or PayPal. Shoot me an email if you'd like to learn more. You can also support WeTheVoters without spending a dime. Please consider leaving a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Or tell a friend about the show. Snap a screenshot of this episode and take me on Instagram or Facebook. These are quick ways that can make a big impact and they truly help the project grow. Everything I talked about in this week's episode is linked in the show notes. You can find them on the blog at wethevotersproject.com. I'll be back here in your feed next Wednesday with another discussion about American culture. But until then, I'm Emily Kate, and this was We The Voters. We The Voters.